The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. Gobble, gobble, viewers and listeners. As you listen to this, you are either preparing yourself for the Thanksgiving dinner, or maybe you have are a couple days removed from the Thanksgiving festivities, depending on when you're catching this program and what format you're catching it, either as radio or podcast or live stream. But either way, you are enjoying this show at hopefully a Thanksgiving adjacent time period. And so I would wish to you and yours, happy Thanksgiving. I'm particularly excited for the holiday. As we record this, Thanksgiving is tomorrow for us in the Break the Business Cinematic Universe. And I am just overjoyed at the notion to dig into all the great foods that come with us on Turkey Day. But even as I say that, I got to say, I feel like calling it Turkey Day as a nickname is not very fair. Because if I'm listing out the foods that I love on Thanksgiving, turkey's kind of low on the list. Let me bring in our, our co-host, Elisa Rockdock, to weigh in on this. Elisa, yeah. how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Ryan? It is a pleasure to have you here. I should mention, joining us later in the show, I'm so excited for this guest. Washington Post columnist and author Taylor Lorenz is going to be joining us. To say that I have been trying to get this interview my whole podcasting life I don't is know almost an understatement. I don't quite know either because she's got a book out. So like any, you know, she, she's got to talk to people and that's great. I mean, she's sort of been a co-host of this show in as much as we've often talked about her stories on this program. Absolutely. But I'm a fan of hers. I know you're a fan of hers. And yep. so I, I I imagine we're both champing at the bit to get to talk to her about her new book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. We both dug through the copies we got because we were so excited to read it. And now we get to ask her all about it. How giddy are you? I'm so stoked um, because if there is anything I love, it is dissertation grade writing about online communities. I can't tell you how happy I am to have you here. When I, when, I mean, I'll give the, the viewers and listeners a backstory here. Oh. When we booked the Taylor Lorenz interview and she sent the book over for us to read, much, much love to her, uh, the folks at Simon and Schuster for getting that over to us. As I'm reading this, the first thought I had was, I am so out of my element. Because Taylor Lorenz writes about the history of the last couple decades of social media and digital media with just a a reporter's doggedness and a PhD's uh, thoughtfulness. And I'm like, I can't do this myself. I, I, I'm bringing a knife to a gunfight. Thankfully, I have a doctor on call a doctor a literal doctor of pop culture on call who like i know understands this language and can speak to this stuff literally has made it her research interest and so thank god i have somebody like you here who can help me handle this interview so that i am not completely underpowered for the whole time thank you for doing this by the way and thank thank you and thank you to the nine years at florida international university for giving me the the, the strength and the gravitas with which to take this task on if i were to i mean because in addition to being a PhD in pop culture. That's not a joke, people. Like, I'm, you know, that's not an honorary title the, that the internet has given the her. The paper it's, says, technically, the paper <laughs> says comparative sociology. Pero what yeah, I, I know studied what was video games. <laughs> yeah. And you, and also, like, if we're, if we're given the whole CV here, you also have a separate master's degree. Not one of those, like, oh, I got a master's degree because I went halfway through to my PhD. No, like a completely well, separate master's degree. <laughs> yeah, one of those too. <laughs> 
but you have a master's degree in like gender and rock music, right? So like even more pop culture onto your c- curriculum vitae. Interdisciplinary studies. If it's not interdisciplinary, I don't want it. Okay. <laughs> so it's not STEM, it's STEAM. So in addition to having the academic background that makes you excited about this interview, you're also just a a denizen of the internet, an extremely online person. And yep. if I were to like list for you the internet figures that are are most that were most formative to you in your internet journey, I imagine Taylor Lorenz is on that list. Absolutely. Um, in in terms of folks that are writing about the internet um in a way that at least I in the gaming sphere, and you know, I'll I'll gush about this to her later, so forgive the repetition, but the the idea that she is bringing what is sorely missing to the conversation about virtual worlds, it's institutional knowledge. We take so many things for granted in terms of brand deals and even just the term influencer and content creator. And we take those as given now, but those things have a history and those things have firsts um, and those things have histories long before what even you might have thought of as the first brand deal um, or the first content creator, essentially. Um, so I, the book is comprehensive. It is something that I wish I had when I was writing my PhD. So I I can't wait. And I am also extremely online, as the book says, to the point where I almost felt like, ooh, should I feel like good that I recognize a lot of these things <laughs> or embarrassed? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's going to be fun. That is going to be fun. But before we get into all of that, let me bring you in on the conversation I was having with the viewers and listeners right before we brought you in, which is about Thanksgiving turkey. As oh. as we said before, we are Thanksgiving adjacent as we mm. do this podcast. People will either be about to sit down to Thanksgiving dinner when they hear or see this or have just concluded their Thanksgiving festivities. And I was just saying that we call Thanksgiving Turkey Day. That's it's. Uh, mm. But honestly, when it comes to Thanksgiving food, it's not the food I'm most excited about, but it gets the leadership credit. I almost consider, you know, I mean, first of all, I, I, I what, all, all this is meant to say, I love the sides of Thanksgiving it's a lot more. It's to me, it is sides giving. It's sides but, giving. But turkey gets too much credit. As far as I'm concerned, if Thanksgiving dinner was an NFL team, okay, oh. they are like the 20, like the, the entire Thanksgiving meal is like the 2019 San Francisco 49ers. And the turkey is Jimmy Garoppolo at quarterback. <laughs> like, decent, but ultimately significantly raised by the skill position talent around him. And being that, ultimately carried. Christian McCaffrey of sides. Yes. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're Christian McCaffrey <laughs> stuffing. You're Debo Samuel green bean casserole. Mm. Um and and you're, somewhere you're, in that in that lineup is mac and cheese. <laughs> yeah, and and somewhere in that lineup is the amazing apple pie that producer Lauren makes every year for our uh, family. Actually, let me just bring her in real quick. Uh, producer Lauren, is there a pie on the menu for tomorrow's Thanksgiving? If you want a pie, there will be a pie because of I was I prepared. A pie. <laughs> I was prepared to make pies because I'm like the pie person. Like every year, I make like 50 pies, and they're all sitting there, and they go out everywhere. And oh, yeah? this year, on both family events. One of them did not assign me uh, pies, but rather other objects. And I was like, oh, all right, I guess that's what I'm doing this year. And then like the big, big family one has like seven different people signed up to bring pies. And I was like, I, I kind of feel excessive right now. Ooh. So it might just be like for me at my house and I'm going to make a whole bunch of like little mini bite sized pumpkin pies because I feel like the crust to pie ratio Ooh. is uh going to be better for getting rid of all the materials that will expire in my pie crust making mission. So I will be making pies and I didn't know where they were going because I was getting out pied in the family. So it'll just be you and me, Ryan. We're going to eat a lot of pie. That being said, don't overexert yourself. Don't let me patriarchy you into pie (laughs) baking if you are not feeling up to it. I'm you know, we're just happy, of course, to be uh, hanging out with you on Thanksgiving. As, as I kvetch about that, though, like my my father said, we're not making a turkey this year because there's other people who've signed up to bring turkeys. So we don't need to do that. And he didn't want to fry it. He's fried a turkey for the last few mm-hmm. years. 
And then at the last minute, two days ago, he goes, oh, I found a great deal on turkey. So I got a turkey and a ham. And I was like, oh, are you going to fry it? He goes, no, you can just put it in the oven. And I was like, oh, can I? Thanks. So (laughs) (laughs) I will also be making a turkey and a ham and the stuffing and the green bean casserole and all that. So, yeah, there's going to be some scheduling issues. I, I am wondering where you're oven. going to find the hours because Be, viewers and listeners, as we record this, it is 9 15 PM Eastern mm-hmm. the night before Thanksgiving. Not the first time. Oh my God. Um, I'm already white knuckling on your behalf. <laughs> I live for this stuff. All right. So Elisa, I got a couple things that, <sighs> Right, we do have we do have a bit of an agenda before we uh, bring Taylor Lorenz in here. I do want to get a career update from you. I believe we have a clip that we want to show, so we got to get to that. That's coming up, but not yet, not yet, producer Lauren. I see you're already adjusting the ticker. Before we do the career update, because I know if I do the career update now for Lisa, that's all we're going to talk about. We're going to run out of time, and we don't get to the story. But I do want to talk about this story with you because I need your your sociologist touch. Oh, I need God. your PhD in pop culture touch you on take this. Take a swig. A, a break the business uh, guest, a friend of the show, Rob Avalo, uh, does the uh, you know is you know great music blogger, and I frequently steal his content for this podcast. Put out an article recently called 10 Predictions for Music Music's Future," in which Ooh. he writes out like you know makes you know some fo- you know puts his futurist hat on, makes some predictions of what the industry is going to look like even just five years from now. And a couple of these, I was like, ooh, maybe. But I'd like to get Elisa's perspective on this because um, the first here's one that might even take up the whole discussion. But I want to see what you think. So I'm going to quote this directly from Rob Avalo's article. Prediction number four: Taylor Swift is the last of music's global superstars. Is one of his predictions. We never see an artist gain this level of multi generational awareness again. Artists will sell out arenas, sell tons of albums, get billions of streams, and have tons of fans, perhaps more than Taylor. But most people will not know who they are, right? Mm-hmm. And a, a thing, a term that I've frequently heard folks in your field talk about, Elisa, recently is how the the rise in social media and algorithmically driven content could portend the end of monocultures, where we're mm-hmm. all watching the same thing, where we're all worshiping the same celebrities. And so if if we think that that might be happening here, do you think there's any credence to what Rob Avalo is predicting here, that Taylor Swift is the last household name that all households know who they are it would be interesting um i might say she might be the last american white woman um potentially to have that sway i fully predict um i i kind of see that maybe like i would i would maybe say bad bunny depending on where his career goes might maybe factor in there potentially um but in terms of this idea that like everything is getting so divided it is absolutely true um i think that there are micro celebrities in terms of like content creators but that also extends to the music industry as well everything has become so um broken off and especially things like tiktok algorithms are so tailored to you um that like you and i we don't have the same feeds we don't have the same music taste anymore whereas you know when we were back in middle school together we would have probably all listened to the same stuff because we were listening to the same mega mix on Power 96. Shouts to them. But uh, I think um, you and I yeah. actually do have very similar feeds because uh, earlier last week you sent me a <laughs> we both have the same very weird feeds. You sent me a video on TikTok of this uh, young woman who stitched together like 12 videos of her oh. singing all of the parts of One Day More from Les Miserables on the automaton. Iconic. And you sent that to me as if I did not already have that on my algorithm. No, your teammate. Well, the well, one, I wanted to wait until all of the parts were done because otherwise <laughs> it would have been 15 TikToks in a row. Um, but but also we our Venn diagrams connect 
in musical theater and parody absurdity. (laughs) That is where we both go inside. Um, But who knows, like, like say for example, right. What, what you were seeing now is more sort of like blips um, of celebrity where the, the 15 minutes of fame runway is considerably shorter um, and it's a lot harder for people to kind of break out of a viral TikTok hit and be able to court the mainstream. Um, it's it's going to just I have no idea where stuff is going to go. And I'm really excited to talk to Taylor about this, because especially with the kind of collapse of X slash Twitter, um, it is very hard for all of us to find one congregative space we don't have the kinds of like appointment television that we used to where we'd all like be live tweeting the same episode of game of thrones like we used to um it's hard for us to find that kind of community and it's going to be a lot more isolated a lot more within friend groups um a lot more contracted and yeah people will sell out arenas but the concert that i'm going to go see that sold out might not be yours anymore and i'm excited and scared (laughs) and it's interesting that you bring up with the demise of x also means the demise of one place where we get all of our content where we are all looking at the same bulletin board for what's important and that can lead to kind of a uh diffusion of cultures and all of us experiencing things differently rob abelow speaks to that in his article as well by talking about uh what he calls the great artist unbundling one of his predictions Mm. is Over the next few years, we're going to see a major shift in the artist fan experience, quote, away from mega platforms that bundle all the artists together as content, be they DSPs like Spotify or platforms like X slash Twitter, to artist-centric platforms Mm -hmm. that bundle each artist's music, art, engagement, membership, and commerce. Most passive consumption will still happen on the mega platforms, but the mega platforms and the majors are going to miss out on the super fan opportunity um, to basically find one place where you're going to find all of one artist's content, which to me sounds exciting because it can create deeper fan relationships, but it also sounds pretty cyclical because does that mean we're just all going back to blogs? Literally, um, you sent this to the group chat, I will say. We have had this discussion in the group chat, and my comment was everybody better... It's going to be a land grab again for personal domain names yep. at some point, because what is going to happen is you have all of your stuff everywhere. Now it's thinking about what your art is and then bringing all of those distribution platforms under your one domain. And then you just tell somebody, com. it's all there. They might even just directly sell their music online because who knows what's going to happen to Bandcamp in a second. Like things are falling apart at the seams. And the only solution I think is for everybody to just take control of your own stuff, of your own distribution, to break the business. Maybe I don't know. (laughs) To me, I think some version of that is inevitable. And the reason why is because, and I want to talk to Taylor Lorenz about that, because I think she implied a lot of what I'm about to say in her book, which is what we've seen time and time again with Twitter, with Facebook, with YouTube, is that the value in those platforms, what made those platforms billion-dollar platforms, multi-billion-dollar platforms, was not the technology. It wasn't the, the code. It wasn't the platform It was the creative professionals. All of those platforms, even Vine, got to where they were when the really talented people went on that platform and made it the place to go. Mm -hmm. And so most you could make an argument that 90, 95% of the value of YouTube, of X, of Twitter, is from the creative people who don't own any of the platform, who own no equity in any of these massive tech conglomerates. And so it makes sense for them if the if the marketplace allows them to to take their business to their own piece of real estate their own website bring their super fans with them still have the passive experience on spotify or x twitter what have you but the real fan engagement the real community is going to happen at somebody's.com and or you know talking to taylor about this somebody's discord oh hello okay Uh uh-huh 
because that's that that's a whole other thing. I'm I just for one, I'm looking forward to adding you to my web ring sometime soon. We're getting back to that. It's all it's it's, it's all cyclical, man. It's all cyclical because because what's going to happen is is somebody at some point is going to be like Hulu, Netflix, Max, Paramount Plus. Can somebody just put all of these channels? <laughs> <laughs> under one service provider and maybe give me some sort of television guide yeah. as to what's on <laughs> and just like one fee to pay yeah and just one subscription and i get all of the, the all of the channels i want and maybe maybe some i don't this this is going to be so silicon valley invents the bus <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're going, you know, it's uh, it's so frustrating in a way. Uh, one other thing that I thought was interesting, I'll just quickly mention it before we get to your career update, because that's that's what everybody wants. Let's be real. Uh, Rob Abelot also talks about the marvelization of music, as he calls it. Quote, Oof. another prediction is that major catalog owners will churn out music's version of sequels using AI and their deep catalogs to exploit timeless material for continued profit, generate new songs, create derivatives, bring dead artists back to quote life, anything to extend blue chip material and IP catalog and its reincarnations take increasing priority over new music. I think we're already starting to see this to some extent, like look at TikTok, right? Some of the most popular versions of songs on TikTok is not the original track. Mm -hmm. It's a slightly sped up version of yep. the track, maybe a double speed version of the track, maybe a slowed, slowed down version of the track, right? <laughs> I mean, how many times has this happened to you where you hear a song on TikTok and you fall in love with it and then you hear it on the radio and you're like, why is this so slow? This literally happened with <laughs> Ghosts, Mary on a Cross. Yes! Which I absolutely adore. I love Ghost. You know me, I love a little pomp and circumstance um, with my with my metal. But the like the thing that went viral was the slowed version to the point where when I finally went on apple music to like grab it smart for them they had both versions available in the ep the regular version yeah. and the slowed version all bundled together and it's bananas yeah. sometimes a, a lot of these sped up versions and i can't remember where, what article i read this and it might have been something taylor lorenz or it might have been something i read in billboard <laughs> where it started out where a lot of these sped up versions of songs were being made by fans, right? Just people illegally ripping the songs, speeding them up, re-uploading them to TikTok. But, and this is to Rob Avalo's point, more recently, you're starting to see labels get in on the act where mm -hmm. they are intentionally releasing a sped up version of the song and putting that on TikTok because it's more conducive to syncing with a short form video. And then, of course, you fall in love with that version, so they're going to put it on Spotify so you can check it out there. And this gets into the marvelization of music. Like, you fall in love with the song, let's give it to you in multiple formats, yeah. and then you'll reconsume those, because that's a lot easier than trying to break a new artist and a new song. Yes, and it's it's going to be like, it, what, it, what it's going to do now is like, this is going to affect, you know, in the same way that it affected song length, um, it's going to affect things like the way that you produce music. It used to be, okay, does it sound good in the car? All right, ship it. Then it was, all right, does it sound good, you know, on my PC speakers? Then it was, does it sound good just coming out of my phone? Now yeah. it's, does it sound good several BPM <laughs> above or below? <laughs> what my original yes. artistic intention was. If we speed this up or slow this down, does this sound good while you're scrolling a meme slideshow on TikTok? Does is is this sexy when someone's chopping down wood to it? <laughs> we really do have similar algorithms. <laughs> All right. Um one more quick topic that is absolutely worth discussing before we bring in Taylor Lorenz is Elisa Rockdock's career update. When you are not a PhD in pop culture, you are kind of kicking ass as a voiceover artist, as an actress, as a audiobook narrator, and the listening and viewing public here at Break the Business love hearing about the great stuff you're up to. And, and you said yourself, you like doing these career updates whenever you come on the show because they sort of force you to like come up with, you know, to do yeah. something cool with your career so that you have something to share Boy, with us. I hope I get booked for something. Do you have something time. cool to share with us? I got booked this morning. Woo! <laughs> Huzzah. Yay. 
Yay! Um, and it is for my first on-camera commercial since that one Dunkin' Donuts ad I did like a bajillion years ago. Um, so that's very exciting. It is for a uh, nationally recognized brand, um, probably under NDA for the rest of it. But um, as as soon as it is it is available for me to say that I did it, um, I'm going to be texting everybody. You can as tell soon us. As clips are available. It's a safe space, just between you, me, and the 30 million SiriusXM subscribers. Just you know, yeah. tell us what it rhymes with. <laughs> <laughs> That's not revealing anything. Almost. I almost Event did get Horizon. You. It's for the movie Event Horizon. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I believe we also have, because it's been a while since we've done this career update yeah. with you, I think we have a a clip. We have some footage from another yes. thing that you booked. Um, let's do this like The Tonight Show. Uh, do you want to introduce this clip? Yes, of course, Ryan. I would love to. So uh, last year, um, I was able to take part in my first ever kind of major commercial uh under under my uh, my, my recent agent uh shouts to mary collins agency love you gals um and uh this was a a vo uh commercial that i did um it was a very fun session it was my first sort of big commercial session and um it um and i am happy to report that uh that the food is actually tasty um so not 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 a single lie was said so who is this for? Because I, I, I don't this have the ad in front Maggiano's. of me. It's for Maggiano's. It is a restaurant. Uh, it is an Italian restaurant. It is a chain. Uh, we have them here in Dallas. I don't know if, you know, wh whoever might have a Maggiano's near you, highly recommend. The bread is free and delicious. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Now we need to hear this commercial. So this is, this is just you doing voiceover. So uh, yeah. for the listeners out there, you're not like missing any visual footage from Elisa Rock Doc. She's yeah. just talking about the delicious food at Maggiano's. Lauren, you have this clip for us? And Maggiano's, it tastes good to go big in Little Italy. Because when it comes to your favorite Italian dishes, there's no such thing as too much mmm. From authentic classics like mom's lasagna, to specialty pastas like our famous rigatoni di, we put the more in amore. Some call it generous portions. We just call it our love language. Pull up a seat or enjoy family night in and experience the Maggiano's mmm. Thank you. Wow. Thank First you. of all, um, uh, I, I'd be in trouble if there were a Maggiano's in my area. I Those Legit, portions though. do look quite generous they and everything there looks portion. incredible and your vo work just really really sells the merchandise here oh, well thank you just that marvelous. that last mm, was the thing that probably took most of the session to <laughs> to record because it's it's like like sometimes i i i feel very very lucky because this for some reason is the kind of gig that i walk in i do a thing for like 15 minutes to half an hour, I walk out, a check clears eventually, and I'm like, how'd that happen? I just spoke into a microphone and, and smiled a bit while <laughs> I said it. Um, this one was definitely a little bit more work because it's, it, it while it doesn't feel like work, it is a lot of work to interpret about three to five ad folks, plus the client on the Zoom call as you're recording the thing, no pressure. Like Ooh. having to impress Maggiano. So you, you weren't just I mean? recording this like completely by yourself. There are people watching you. Yeah. Wow. That's that's intense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So 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 there was a little little harrowing and and you know, we we just needed to hear different mms. And 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 thank goodness I am a singer because I was able to deliver every single pitch of mms I had available. And I'm like, pick pick your favorite one. I was about to say, did they ask you like, can you just do like twelve mm's and we'll just go back and put well, the it, it, it was a little bit like, can, can, can we have one a little a little less lascivious? Or <laughs> you know, is it <laughs> a, a delicious mm and different kinds of mm's? It's a very fuzzy line between mm's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the 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 mm they went with. I mean, that's. Little dangerous. This is a family hey. restaurant, Elisa Rock Talk. <laughs> <laughs>
the bread is really good. I mean, yeah. I mean, that chocolate cake might have been worth that mmm that you gave us. Uh, congratulations. That, that's a great spot. I'm excited for your next opportunity. And all of the viewers and listeners just love seeing these cool things you're putting together, whether it's the audiobook, whether it's these commercials. Just just so great to see. I'm, it's make, you're making the dream happen. We're all really proud of you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm this is this is the the best gig in the world. Um and and I feel lucky every single day that I get to play with a microphone or in front of a camera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. <laughs> we got Taylor Lorenz joining us right afterwards. Don't go anywhere. We're back in 2 minutes here on Break the Business. Ryan Corella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Elisa, I'm looking at the list of the things that each family member of mine is to bring for the Thanksgiving festivities tomorrow. Mm. And I noticed my family has been tasked with ice. So if you want to get some, oh yeah, lucky, but also if you want some indication of the amount of faith (laughs) that the host has in the culinary abilities of my household, just know we were asked to bring ice. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome back to Break the Business, everybody. Ryan Carella here with Elisa Rock Doc. Wishing all of you a happy Thanksgiving. How are you, Elisa? Um, great. And already hungry for tomorrow. What is what is Thanksgiving going to be for you? You got some stuff cooked? Are you ordering in? I hope you're ordering in. That sounds a lot easier. Um uh my um my brother. Uh, and his sister-in-law are hosting, and I um, I have been tasked with making all of the mac and cheese, uh, but we're doing a stovetop version uh, with a toppings bar. Um, so for your so like a make your own Sunday bar, but for macaroni and cheese or some some like a, a, a toasted a butter toasted herbed Ritz crumbs on that uh, on that mac and cheese, whatever oh, you want. I love it. I love it. All right. Let us bring out our guest this yes. week. I have only been looking forward to talking to this person my entire broadcasting life. She is the acclaimed columnist for the Washington Post and the author of the new book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet, which chronicles the societal transformations brought about by the rise of social platforms and modern internet culture. It's available wherever books are sold, and you can find out more by visiting extremelyonlinebook.com. We are happy to welcome Taylor Lorenz on to Break the Business. Hi, Taylor. Hi, how's it going? Uh, It is a pleasure to be speaking with you. I got to say from the outset, Taylor, um, Elisa, for a little bit of background on her, she literally has a PhD in pop culture. So like this was like research for her reading through your book. Um, (laughs) As for me, it was, you know, reading it as an entertainment lawyer. I was blown away by a lot of the analysis you gave. But my first impression when reading this, and I think Elisa used this adjective, which was apt, is 
how comprehensive it was. I mean, you went into this with a reporter's meticulousness. You interviewed what had to have been, gosh, probably over 100 people for, from what it looks like here. And, you know, really went into your primary sources, really dug in deep and, and came up with almost, a, would say, an unabridged uh, analysis of the last 25 years of social media. Can you talk a little bit about the process of how you put this book together and the research that was required? Yeah. Um, well, I got my book deal right before the pandemic, so it kind of threw me for a loop in terms of the reporting process. I was planning to do a lot more in person. I ended up interviewing actually around 600 people total. Um, it was a way lot. too low. <laughs> I know. It, it's a, I can barely believe it. If I didn't have them all in an Excel sheet, I would not realize that. But um but yeah, uh, it took me it took me a long time because I wanted to make, as he said, this like sort of comprehensive history about the rise of social media, kind of zoomed out and talk about the interplay between these platforms. Um, the original draft of the book was twice as long, too. So I did talk to a lot of people that I ultimately <laughs> didn't use. But um, yeah, it took me about a year and a half to write it and then a year to get it published because books take a while to print. <laughs> I'd love to know the stuff that made the cutting room floor. I, I can just imagine Taylor Lorenz wrote a whole chapter about collegetrader.com and her <laughs> editors are like, come on, something's got to get jettisoned here. And you're like, no, college trader is so important. Write my professor now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saving for book two. Yes. No, <laughs> it was a lot, you know, there was a lot of stories, like people's stories that kind of got cut, like a lot of more personal stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and then other sort of ancillary stuff that didn't totally fit with social media, things like Reddit that are kind of like adjacent. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned Reddit, but I initially had like a whole chapter on that. So yeah, it was a lot, but hopefully it was an easy read. <laughs> well, the Redditors are an are a, a easy going bunch. I'm sure they're not going to be yeah. upset that you yeah. <laughs> took out most of their uh, discussion. I I am as as I told Elisa in the first segment, Taylor. I am ill equipped to <laughs> do this interview on my own because you come at this analysis with a a PhD's level of meticulous and detail, and so I had to bring in a PhD. To, to like weigh in on this, like I, I'm going to step back here for a sec. Elisa, what do you got for Taylor Lorenz? Oh, well, 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 first off, just just sort of gushing and 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 maybe an admission um, that reading the book felt like the Leonardo DiCaprio meme just the entire time. Whenever I would read something and I'd be like, ah, pioneer woman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cobra snake. Ah! And it, it was like. A, a almost retrospective in a couple of places of my own online history. And I was like, oh, should I be embarrassed that I remember this <laughs> or that I was there? <laughs> no, I um, love that, though. I want people to read it and be like, oh, my God, I remember that. Or like, I had no idea that was happening, you know, so. Yeah. And, and even just sort of like, like a lot of the moments before the big moments is what I loved seeing. Like, like the idea of, and, and, and so many decisions that we take for granted now, like, oh, this is just how a brand deal works now. The idea that the Carl's Jr. YouTube story, um, one of these sort of first major brand deals that occurred not just with banner ads, but also with the work of YouTube influencers doing a coordinated effort, the fact that that was just to like, oh, we got some extra budget. What do you think we should do with it? <laughs> like just some of these throwaway questions and these sort of like sliding doors moments of like, what if we hadn't had that $90,000 randomly to have $90,000 left over in a budget? First off, what? That was like the first thing that I that I thought. But the idea of like these little decisions made in rooms of like, wouldn't it be weird if that now turn into the things that that we take so for granted nowadays in in digital media it's awesome yeah so many little moments that you look back and you're like wait that was actually really pivotal or like that was kind of this like watershed moment that you just don't realize when things are happening at the time and to what elisa noted there about us taking some of these things for granted right there's so many things that we do now that are just so commonly accepted in marketing or in promoting creative professionals that back then, like it's, you know, it would have been like telling a brand, we want you to light your building on fire. I mean, <laughs> you write about how like, you know, some brands were shocked at the notion of 
you want us to make a Twitter account for our company? You want, you know, this company to tweet like the same Twitter that like these these crazy people are writing crazy things on Twitter. That's insane. We would never do that. And now they all do that. Like now you're, you know, Wendy's is talking to you like they're Wendy's. I mean, but that used to be crazy. Like what is like of all the things of all those different phenomena in your book, what's the one where you point to where you're like, what this, this thing that we do so commonly now used to be unheard of a decade or two ago? Okay. Well, one thing that I only mentioned in passing in the book, but I, I took it, I took one, I, it was originally going to be much longer and I took it out and pulled it into a separate piece because it didn't make the final version of everything, but is selfies. Um, 10 years ago, actually, just a couple months ago was when selfie was declared word of the year. And I don't know if you guys remember, but it was like, the media cycle, if you go back and read what was written about when people started to take selfies, it is insane. Like you would have thought this was like the death of society. And mm -hmm. it's like, and every time like Obama, like Obama took a selfie, that was a scandal for weeks. And then like anytime a celebrity took a selfie or posted a selfie, there was like an entire Huffington Post article about it. Like, and it was this thing where it was like, everyone's turning into narcissists and it's crazy. And it was... <laughs> It was just, I thought it was so interesting. One, because the user behavior was pioneered by teen girls, actually, and which a lot of things are on the internet. And also just the, the like, freak out and the, like, takes. Like, there's this CNN segment on the cell. It's so funny. They're freaking out. And it's like, guys, relax. It's just a front-facing camera. I wanted to point out something that, that you mentioned, too, which is, like, the biggest, you know, thing that I love about your book as somebody who researched, like, gender and video games is the idea that we're, you know, we're, we're losing a lot of institutional knowledge. And it's a lot of the institutional knowledge that um, that also points out that a lot of these these sort of formative voices weren't Silicon Valley CEOs. It was mommy bloggers. It was teen girls is Tumblr culture. It's like so much of the way that fans interact and, you know, that we interact with media nowadays, all of that was pioneered by by young girls and women and, and other marginalized folks. And you shining a light on that is very, very important because when the history of the Internet is written, you know, much like a lot of times the history of video games is still being written, a lot of voices are left out that look like us. So thank you. For that. Yeah. Well, as a tech reporter, it's kind of my pet peeve because I think that there's so much focus. I mean, the two books that came out right when mine were like, of course, the big Michael Lewis, Sam Bankman fried book and Walter Isaacson's Elon Musk book, which I read pretty much most of both of those. But there's just so much obsession with tech founders and specifically men and this myth of like the great man theory of technological progress. And it's such bullshit. And SNV <laughs> that covers like internet culture and um, you know, especially content creator culture, it's not, it was very much not that. And actually those Silicon Valley founders were like very hostile to these creators in the creator industry for years. So yeah, it was fun to kind of try to set the record straight. I do that a lot with my reporting, but now I'm like, okay, it's in a book. Well, let's stay with that for a second. Cause I would say of the many themes of your book that I found compelling, I think that one was the one that spoke to me the most and spoke to kind of what this podcast is all about the most, which is empowering indie creators and, you know, getting them what they're worth. And I have highlighted and chiseled and circled this one passage that I just want to quickly read. Cause I think it just, it, you know, blows me away. Uh, and this speaks to what you just said, Taylor. Uh, this is from the start of chapter six. While the mythology around Silicon Valley featured young men who could see the future better than everyone else, what the rise of social media thus far had proven is that nearly all of those young men had been wrong. They had each built a platform with the confidence that it would do one thing better than anyone else, only to be redirected and rescued by a community of creative users. What your book showed us time and time again is that all of these major social media platforms, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, every single one of them, without exception, Vine, got to where they were, not because the technology was great. In fact, a lot of times in the early years, the technology was super buggy. It was the creative professionals. All of these platforms became multi-billion dollar platforms when the creators descended upon them and created content that we all wanted to go onto the platform and watch. 
And what's frustrating to me when I read that as an entertainment lawyer who represents these creators is they're the ones that create all the value in these platforms. They're the ones that turn these platforms from million dollar platforms into billion dollar platforms. And none of them ever see any of the equity from it. It all goes to the tech people who created the buggy technology. And when these platforms blow up, not only do the creators not get to participate in any of that profit and any of that growth, but they're often left holding the bag when these platforms inevitably collapse like Vine did and all of their followers, all of their fans disappear and they have nothing. And I mean, can, can I get your perspective on this and, and, and any, I don't know if you've ever entertained any thoughts about what the solution is. Like, do we create some kind of structure where, uh, these creators can get equity in the platform, like a stock option, the way that employees in a startup do, I, I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, certain startup social media companies will offer early creators, um, you know, stock in the company. I don't know that that's totally the best option just because so many creators are in flux. Like you're not always a creator necessarily for the whole lifespan of a platform. Um, I think, I mean, if you ask the crypto people, they think that like blockchain will solve this, whatever. Yeah. I think it's probably Tokens more. And, yeah. yeah, I don't know about any of that, but <laughs> I think it's probably more of like a federated model. Like what, I mean, Threads has said that they're going to kind of like have this interoperability, but basically trying to make it so that you're not so locked into specific platforms. Like I think a lot more journalists are actually paying attention to this issue because of the downfall of Twitter. And that's where like pretty much all journalists have like their clout. And so I think they're starting, I don't know, there's just been a lot more coverage. My colleague Willa Remus has written some really smart stuff about it, but yeah, there's not, I mean, in terms, but that still doesn't give them a share of the profit. And I think that, yeah, the whole profit incentives, I, I would love to see less profit driven platforms, to be honest. Um, that, that would probably, uh, probably be a lot better for all of us, uh, uh, yeah. you know, including the people who have to frequent these platforms. Um, let me talk about you for a second. You know, we, you know, the 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 book is is wonderful, and we we can talk more about it. But I, I wanted to ask you about something that I've wanted to ask you for a long time, which is you have devoted your career to chronicling this culture, but you're not just chronicling it as a traditional journalist would, where you're kind of an outside observer. You're also, whether you intended to or not a participant of, in this culture, an active participant in this culture, and oftentimes a victim of this culture. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, can you, can you speak to that? Like, what's it like being a journalist in something where you're very much in the tornado as it's spinning? Yeah. Um, you know, a friend of mine is a pop music critic and I think of him often because, you know, he's such a fan of pop music and loves it, but is also like, just that world is so, I think it's very similar to my beat in the sense that there's these like intense fandoms and intense, yep. intense online experiences. Um, I love it. I mean, I, I am a lover of the internet and technology and I am a content creator myself. And so I think it's, I'm, I like the creativity that the internet gives and the, the way that I can have a two-way dialogue with my readers and followers like I, I think that it's such a shame that most journalists don't want to engage in that two-way sort of thing it's more they want to like write their story and put it out there and then not like hear the feedback and sometimes you're right the feedback can be crazy and I'm wrapped up in like drama and all the, the ways that the mm -hmm. internet is weaponized but I just think it makes my work better because mm. I think if you're going to have somebody write about this world you want somebody living it that was my whole goal when I started writing I didn't have any background in journalism or anything I was working at a call center and temp jobs and I just thought that the mainstream media was writing really badly about the mm -hmm. internet and so I thought was like the era of the bloggers I was like I have I could set up a blog and do this <laughs> I, I'm I'm a, I'm a little surprised by that I mean Taylor I say this as respectfully as possible. You can't possibly love all of it. If I were to make no, my my <laughs> list of people who have been, you know, adversely affected by people on the internet publicly in, 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 in the yeah, in, who have not deserved it, you're very high on that list. I mean, I mean, you have often faced things that. If they were to happen to me, I would have hid under a rock, much less, you know, wanted to write a book about it. Um, and so to hear you say like, oh, I like you, you, you speak as if like you didn't go through like a lot of the things that you went through. Like, does it just kind of roll off your back? Yeah, I, I know. I, I think covering YouTubers for so long, it's like being like a frog in boiling water. Where like, yeah. I mean, I was saying this when like Tucker Carlson kept doing all these segments on me in, in 2020, 2021 before he got kicked off the air. And um, 
you know, all of his fans were doxing me and trying to swat me and everything that had happened to me so many years prior from Jake Paul fans. And, you know, I cover like video game people. Like, I mean, I'm friends with people that were involved that were targeted in Gamergate. Mm -hmm. And like, I've been through so many cycles of it that at this point I'm like, okay, here we go again. Swap Mm -hmm. my parents again. Like, what are you guys going to do? By the way, my family doesn't give a shit. Like, (laughs) I don't give a shit. Like, I'm still going to do my job. I, so I don't, I mean, there are scary aspects of it that sometimes really affect my life, especially the stalking is really affected my life, but I'm a delusional optimist generally about life. So I don't know. It's, just- it's in, and, and as somebody who like took a glancing glow from, from, from Gamergate, cause I, I started my career in, in video games, you know, as an opinion writer. And then I, I, I wrote, one strong opinion about women in video games, maybe oh, no. too many, um, <laughs> in around 2014. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> and, and, and really like, I, I sympathize because it's like, it's really like literally and figuratively for the love of the game. And, and also because like, I'm not going to let you be the one. <laughs> Like there has to be some some version of that. It's like of all people, it's not going to be you that makes me quit. And I'm sure there's a whole comment section that that you can say that about. But it it really is the love of the game that keeps us in it. But also because without your voice, you know, it's who else is going to be left to write about these things and actually tell these important stories. Well, also, I, I'm grateful that I have the platform that I do that I built up myself over years because I think it gives me a level of power. You know, I've seen the way especially these media institutions treat women and people of color and people that are targeted in these campaigns. And I think I'm luckily like high profile enough that like I'm insulated from some of the worst of it, like in the sense that like they can't just like be like, oh, this girl's getting targeted a lot. Like, we're just going to fire her to mm-hmm. not deal with it anymore. Like, which I've seen happen to other women and other people of color and other marginalized groups. And so I feel pretty lucky. And I'm kind of, like I said, I'm in a good position. I've talked about this before too, like with my family, like, cause my family's been targeted a bunch and it's like, my family, if they call the police to my parents' house again, like my parents are pretty chill. They live in a nice suburban neighborhood. Like it's not as scary as a, you know, a former colleague of mine whose parents were immigrants undocumented. And, you know, like, so I'm kind of like, it could be worse. And also, yeah, I think it just gives me a way better understanding and empathy for the people that I cover because a lot of the people I've covered have been through hell on the internet. And the reason I get the stories I do is because they know that I'm not going to fuck it up because I've been on the other end. So, yeah. And let me ask you about the 20 the something, 30 something years you've chronicled in this book and <laughs> where, where we started and where we are now. And the fact that you have been chronicling it most of this time, being a participant in it, being impacted by it, all of the good, all of the bad. Can you just assess all of it and just, you know, ask, let me ask you like help overall is, <laughs> is all of this a good thing overall or a bad thing? Would, would we be better off if we just didn't have any of the last 25 years of social media? Okay. I say, no, I, I say, I say we're better, but I don't think that we're better because like Mark Zuckerberg is so great or something. I, <laughs> I think that like, I, I do think that, and I talk about this, sort of at the end of my book, but I do think the connection is is so mm-hmm. important. It's this fundamental human need. And the, the democratization of information, the rise of sort of independent journalism, I think is really important. The problem is that this whole sort of ecosystem has been so warped by profit and really nefarious incentive structures that we're in like a bad place, like we're in this weird flux period. Um, but I, I'm hoping that we can get out better but i am so, i would so much rather be alive today than in the 90s and in that mm. media environment because it's crazy no one had a voice like you didn't have a voice unless you went through a gatekeeper truly mm-hmm. and the world today sucks in so many ways and so many people still don't have voices in the way that they mm-hmm. could but i mean at least you can go on tiktok or you know there's some there's some sense of justice i was just watching this horrible video of this man harassing this um this street vendor on the Upper East Side saying the most racist stuff ever. And I was just like, thank God for cell phones and the, the having, mm-hmm. 
you know, that recording. And again, I think we live in a surveillance state with everyone recording each other. I'm not saying it's all good, but mm. you know, there's just a lot more accountability because of the internet. And I'm grateful for that. Also way more careers in media for people mm. like me and other people that would have never gotten into journalism otherwise. Now, even though your book isn't a how-to guide for mm. creative professionals, it is, you know, it's very much a, an independent report, a, you know, chronicling of you know the last couple decades in media i think there are at least some lessons that are implied for creators in the book perhaps lessons that you can learn as a creator if you read the book which i recommend all creators do um can you talk a little bit about like if you were you know if you were advised if a independent creator came up to you and asked you like mm -hmm. what are some of the lessons that we should learn from the last 25 years of social media and the internet about how to improve my career over the next five to ten years what might you tell them Ooh, okay. The first thing I would say is hedge your bets because everything is way more volatile than you think. And that's a big lesson that I learned is like, don't ever put all your chips on one table, I guess it is like with one platform um, and to be kind of creative. And um, yeah, so just hedge your bets and don't bet on one platform. I mean, so many different things, just like monetize in a smart way. Also diversify your revenue streams as much as possible. Um, and try to do things. I mean, I think like the stories of people, I was interested in like a lot of the creators that set early trends. Like, I do think that there's value to being early on things. Um, right now we're in this period though, where everyone recognizes the value almost like, especially young people, they really recognize the value of new social platforms. So you see this like rush every time there's a new app, like, is this the next ticket to mm -hmm. fame? And you know, that's not the best way to approach things. Like, I mean, I just say like, have fun. And if you're not having fun online, then don't do it anymore. It's not worth it. Well, before we do the final question that we ask mm -hmm. all the guests, I would like to give uh, Elisa Rockdoc uh, uh, another opportunity to come in with one more question uh, so we can benefit from her expertise to get the most out of Taylor's expertise. Ah, gross. No. Um, <laughs> um, my, my sort of thing, um, I'm Twitch added stories mm -hmm. to its app. What are we doing here? <laughs> Just generally, like what, where, where are we going? Because I'm, I'm somebody who is also like, like a dabbled in Twitch, you know, loves TikTok, but everything's trying to become everything to everyone. What, what, what is, what, what are we doing? The stories, th the stories thing is so interesting because what it is, is people wanting more lightweight, ephemeral ways to engage in social media. And tech companies can sort of only understand that through stories. Like it's like, oh, Snapchat did this one thing in 2016 and now we're all going to do it. And I think it's, I think it's a lack of creativity and just the product teams always copying each other at every platform. But yeah, I agree. Enough. We no more okay. stories. <laughs> our, our guest has been washington post columnist and author taylor renz her new book extremely online the untold story of fame influence and power on the internet is available wherever books are sold find out more by visiting extremelyonlinebook.com taylor before we let you go one last question and i understand this is kind of sort of a repeat of the question i previously asked but it is what it is because we got to ask the final question to every guest. So I think you got one. Hopefully you got one as, more tidbit as, for as us. As one of my favorite meme accounts on Instagram. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, um, yes, you. exactly. Uh, one last question. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Oh, my God. No, it's a good question. I mean, in terms of creators, I think collaboration is the most important thing. And also, a lot of times you see people doing things that are similar to you. And I see this all the time where people get very territorial and very competitive. I think that's the worst thing to do. Because when I started writing about the Internet, I found a bunch of other people that were also writing about the Internet. And we all help each other so much. I could have not done my job without the girls that I found that do it with me. And so we're at competing publications. but it, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. And that's really true. And actually realized that writing my book too. It's like collaboration is so important. So find your people and collaborate and don't be, don't worry about, you know, don't get all competitive too much. Well, with each we other. are certainly glad we found you as a person, Taylor. This has been a blast of an interview. Um, I know how busy your schedule is, particularly now with the book coming out, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. Please don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again real soon. Like anytime you want to come by, please make yourself available. I would love to keep this excellent conversation going. And this has been a real treat. 
Thank you guys so much. I'm a fan and I'm honored to be here. So hit me up anytime. And thanks again and happy Thanksgiving. Did we all get that? I'm a fan. Let's let's get that printed <laughs> on as many uh, dust jackets as we possibly can. Again, you can find out more about our guest's work by visiting extremelyonlinebook.com. Our thanks to Taylor Lorenz, Elisa Rockdock, producer Lauren, and all of you viewers and listeners for checking out Break the Business. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week.